I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. We've talked a lot on this show about the quality of the food we eat, and we've also discussed in a few different episodes how important the way we grow food is. I've had Will Harris from White Oak Pastures and Joel Salatin as guests on my show in the past to talk about regenerative farming and what that approach to agriculture can add in terms of biodiversity and nutrient density of the plants and the animals that we eat. Uh, today, I'm really excited to welcome David Montgomery and Anne Bicklay as my guests. David is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington, and he's internationally recognized uh, as a geologist who studies the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. And Anne is a science writer and speaker focused on the connections between people, plants, food, health, and the environment. And we're going to be talking about their newest book. They have, they've written several books, uh, all of which are excellent, starting with Dirt back in 2007, when hardly anyone was, was uh, discussing the importance of soil quality. Uh, they kind of pioneered that conversation uh, early on. And their, their recent book is What Your Food Ate. So this book looks at the topics of soil health and nutrition, organic matter and living organisms being key factors in soil health, uh, the importance of the microbiome of the soil, and there are a lot of fascinating parallels between that and the importance of the gut microbiome for human health, how conventional agriculture adversely affects the soil microbiome, how disruption of the soil microbiome has led to a decline in the availability of nutrients in the food that we eat, how microorganisms in the soil contribute uh, directly and indirectly to the health of the soil and to our health, and then how regenerative farming can stop soil erosion, improve soil health, and build up soil carbon. We also discuss one of the more common objections to regenerative farming, which is that it's not scalable uh, and that we really have to choose between quantity and quality. And then towards the end of the show, we talk about some things that uh, we as individuals can do to, to make better choices around food and, and really support soil quality, uh, improving and, and maintaining soil quality, which is 
one of the fundamental things we need to do to preserve humanity and our health and well-being. So I really enjoyed this episode. It was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you do as well. Let's dive in. David and Anne, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, thanks a lot. So I'm going to start with a very simple question, which is why should we care about soil health? Well, you know, there's, there's sort of two ways to look at that. One is at a broad societal scale, and the other is at an individual scale, sort of the health of each of us. And soil health turns out to really matter, I think, for both. At the broad societal scale, you know, healthy fertile soil is what has fed us through the agricultural era in the post-glacial world. And uh, you can chart the course and fate of civilizations based in a way on how they treated their land. Um, it sort of sets the stage upon which human history has played out. And we wrote about that in Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations um, a few years back. And if you look at our individual health, trying to connect the dots between soil health, the health of crops, the health of livestock, and the health of people is what Anne and I wrote about in, in our new book, What Your Food Ate. And there's you know, there's a lot of detail on sort of how you can connect those dots, but the more that we've learned in the last 80 years in the sort of modern agricultural era, the more it seems those dots connect and the better the science that sort of supports there being connections as complex and, and nuanced as they are. So this is definitely not my area of expertise, and that's why I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. I'm you know, more involved in what happens after people take food out of the soil, of course, but it seems to me that earlier in the 20, like in the 20th century, the main focus from an agricultural perspective was how are we going to feed the growing population? And a lot of the efforts were geared towards just kind of goosing the system as much as to, to, to essentially yield as many crops as we possibly could. And there wasn't a lot of attention or even questions being asked about how those inputs were going to affect the health of the soil over the long term. Is that a fair characterization, number one? And number two, how has that changed in at least, you know, like in your experience over your lifetimes? I know you've both had long careers in these fields. Like what, what changes are you seeing now? Yeah, it, that's a really good um, question, Chris. And it always reminds me that famine has a long, long shadow when it comes to humanity. And that, of course, was, you know, part of the motivating reason and why enough food, you know, yield, that's what yield is when people talk about that is, do we have enough to at least get calories into everybody? So that it's not just a long arm, it's a strong arm, too. And at least for those of us in the Western world, the problem of enough calories was solved a while ago. And yet we have not been able to pivot to dealing with, you know, another aspect of our health, which is, uh, are we getting enough of the nutrients that actually support our health? So these are things that, you know, don't really have caloric value, you know, mineral elements, phytochemicals, those kinds of things. And so it is a fair characterization to say that we've, we've, had a really tough time in agriculture of um, we can't let go of yield because we do still need to grow and harvest enough food to feed people, but we need to bring another uh, factor into that. And that is what is the quality of the food? Is it suffused with the nutrients? And when I say nutrients, I'm that's a really broad category in my mind as a biologist. It's It's way more than just calories. And so we need to bring that aspect into things so that we're growing enough food that has the things in it that are just vital and critical to human health, especially once you get past the stage of you know, infancy and young adulthood. And, and that becomes a question of, okay, we've built this body, the biomass is pretty set, we hope. It's not continually growing and getting bigger anyway. And so if we have this biomass, what do we need to do to take care of it, to keep it you know, functioning and in, in good health for as long, um, as long of a person's life as is possible? Because it's, it's really not, I don't think anybody is looking forward to living you know, the last 25 or 30 years of their life with chronic illnesses that are you know, just so debilitating, it, it kind of wrecks your quality of life. Yeah. So 
we, David and I, we, we see this idea is some types of farmers are realizing this and they're beginning to change their practices so that it's changing what gets into the crops and animals that become a part of the human diet. Hmm. That's such an important point. It's actually the timing of this podcast recording is perfect because I, in the last two years, you know, I've been working as a functional medicine clinician for 15 years and I've come to believe that nutrient deficiency or nutrient inadequacy is this sort of like hidden tip of this hidden iceberg that is dramatically impacting our health and our quality of life. And yet it's, it's, it's hardly any, there's hardly anybody talking about it, even in the functional medicine world. And I think part of it comes down to the difference between deficiency and inadequacy. Like we've, we've had this view of like nutrient, we need a certain amount of new of a nutrient just to avoid like scurvy or rickets right. or beriberi or pellagra. Okay. We're past that. Now we, we have higher aspirations than just dying from a frank nutrient deficiency. We want to live, you know, a long, healthy life, avoid chronic disease, all the things you talked about. And it, we know now from extensive research that the level of nutrient required for that is much higher than the level that's just required to avoid an acute deficiency related disease. And so I'm, I'm happy to be having this conversation because, you know, you could look at it and say, we are now extremely well fed, but we're undernourished. And I, I saw a statistic the other day, I think you'll appreciate that average calorie intake has increased by 24% since 1961. And I think that study was in the early 2000s. So we're now 20 years past that. I'm, I'm guessing that it's actually increased uh, more than that. But I know from reading your book and other resources that the nutrient levels in our food have steadily declined over that time. So you have a double whammy where the calorie intake is going up from ultra-processed to refined foods that are devoid of nutrients, and then the nutrient levels of even the good, healthy foods that we might eat are going down. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, why is this happening? How does this relate to the microbiome of the soil, which I know you focus a lot on? Uh, what's going on in the last 50 years that's, that's, that's causing this decline in nutrient value? Yeah, so there's a couple angles there. Um, and in, in effect, what we've done in, moder in you know, modernizing our agricultural practices is that we've looked at prioritizing the aspects of agriculture that will help us survive, but we've kind of left those aspects that could help us thrive off the table inadvertently as we've sought to, to as, as the global we have sought to feed the world. So how, how does this all sort of connect? When you look at um, things like the mineral acquisition or the mineral micronutrient acquisition by crops, um, there's been um, uh, you know, documented declines or you know, studies that have documented declines in the mineral content of foods over the last 80 years. And you know, some of them are controversial, some of them have gone back and forth. But when you review them all like we did in the book, it's pretty clear that there have been declines. And there's actually a widely accepted hypothesis in agriculture about why that is. It's only part of the story, in our opinion, but part of the story is, is fairly well accepted. And that's what's known as the dilution effect. And so imagine you're basically growing a, a wheat plant and you breed it to have twice as many seeds as it had before. You know, that sounds good. It's twice as many calories. It's twice as much food. But if that plant takes the same amount of zinc out of the soil to then park in those seeds, it's spreading it through twice as many seeds. So each seed gets half the zinc. So there's a fairly simple uh, effect that's been... Uh, manifest through crop breeding where we've bred for yield without paying attention to simultaneously breeding for greater nutrient uptake to support a higher nutrient density in that yield. So that's part of the problem. Um, the one part of the problem that has basically been shown to really not be uh, a contributor to the nutrient decline is actually declines in you know depletion of minerals in the soil. That's kind of a red herring. What we think is actually, and there's been good studies that have looked at that. Uh, what I think is there's this other aspect though, and that's interrupting the soil life that helps crops provision get those mineral elements out of the soil you know a zinc element um you know trapped in a min in a soil particle doesn't really do a crop or a human any good you need to get it into the crop and then get it into the person to actually help with our micronutrient supply and it turns out that biology soil life is the agent that helps to get those micronutrients out of soil particles and into crops 
And two of our primary agricultural methods at this point, intensive tillage and the, the liberal application of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, both undermine the fungal life that helps to prospect and get those micronutrients into our crops. So if we use a lot of tillage and a lot of, um, of nitrogen, we can grow high yields, but those methods undermine the mechanisms biologically that help provision those crops with high abundances of mineral micronutrients. Um, and that hasn't received a lot of study. Um, we review the background on that in the book and then make the case for why that's an important factor to think about. And so what we're trying to do with, with What's Your Food Ate is to really let people know that when you think about you know, healthy eating, it's, you, of course, we should think about what we eat. That's like a huge factor, right? But the additional element is how was it raised? Because that can affect um, the provisioning of things that we actually want in our food. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as a clinician who's focused on gut health and, you know, and, and reviewed so much, so many studies on the relationship between the gut microbiota and our absorption and assimilation of nutrients. There's so many complex interactions that happen between the, the bacteria and yeast in the gut and, and not only like compounds that they produce on their own that, that are useful to us. And I'll come, come back to that because I know you've written about that as well but their ability to extract nutrients from food. And we know that with someone who has an unhealthy gut microbiota, they could eat the exact same meal as someone who has healthy gut microbiome, but they're going to get totally different nutrition out of the meal as a result of that. So it sounds like that that's also a factor in the soil. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole, the whole game when it comes to diet, and, and I really like framing things in terms of diet because the soil can have a diet. The soil microbiome has a diet, just like a person and, and our microbial communities. And kind of the whole, the whole game there is that these, you know, these microbes, whether it's bacteria or fungi or protists, what have you, they're acquiring, they're, they're, they play a huge role in acquisition and in processing. And, you know, sometimes that word, you know, processing gets bound up with, um, you know, ultra processed foods. And, you know, I just, I just want to stay here for the record. Processing is not, is not a bad thing, right? It's like when, when you go and get tomatoes and make tomato sauce, that's a form of processing, but we're not talking about wholesale alteration of things plus the introduction of other things. And so this is what's happening in, in the soil and in the gut is that these microbes are acquiring and helping to process uh, in many cases, various components in the, the diet, you know, the, the diet of a plant, as well as the diet of a person. So it's, it's, we're not only what we eat, I think we're, we're more than what we eat when, as you're, to your point, when the microbial communities in the gut and the soil are functioning like they're supposed to be. Yeah, and I always like to say, you know, normal function is good enough. We don't need some kind of super, super anything. We just need normal. And, and when you get to normal, then you get to functional. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that because you mentioned, David, some of the of the threats to the soil microbiome, like fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides and and tillage and bare fallows. I, I know those, those all threaten soil health, just like antibiotics and chronic stress and NSAIDs threaten our gut microbiome from processed food. What's the fiber of soil? Uh, what what are what what are some of the things, you know, that like the two key factors that really contribute to the health of soil and the health of the, the soil microbiome? You know, there's really sort of two big aspects to that. I would argue that uh, soil organic matter would be the fiber equivalent for the soil. And, and the parallels between what goes on in the human gut and its relationships with our microbiome and what goes on in the soil are pretty striking and profound. You can go down the list from nutrient acquisition to teeing up a defensive system, communication, um, all the sort of functions of that chemical communication between microbes and the host organism, whether a plant or a person, are, are pretty profound and, and integrated evolutionarily into maintaining the health of that organism on, on both ends of it. It's a, they're mutually beneficial symbiotic relationships. Uh, the microbes end up making things that benefit the health of the host organism. And what does the host organism do for the microbes? It helps feed them. 
So in terms of soil health, uh, you know, the, the provisioning of soil organic matter in the soil is a big one, but also the provisioning of exudates from the plants. And, and what are exudates? Well, they're things that plants exude or drip out of their roots. And when you look into what kind of compounds plants are, are you know, making through photosynthesis and then exuding out through the roots, there are things like carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, fats, uh, you know, it sounds like food because it is food. It's food for microbes. So they're basically laying out an underground smorgasbord for organisms that will then congregate around their roots and metabolize those exudates into things that help to benefit the plants. And so when you look, think of sort of what makes for healthy, fertile soil, it's, um, you know, a, a good amount of organic matter for the climate and the region and the soil that which are, you know, all factors in that in what's enough um, or what's good. Um, but also then a, a healthy component of soil life that is in is in a commensal or beneficial relationships with the vegetation growing there. Um, and those are the things that the, um, you know, too frequent uh, tillage or too intense a use of synthetic fertilizers can actually disrupt because they encourage the degradation of that soil organic matter and they can change the community of life in the soil. It's not just enough to have life in the soil. It, you want life that is actually acting in concert with the crops you're trying to grow and the people you're trying to, and, and, and provisioning the nutrients that you want to nourish the people who eat those crops. And so scrambling who's there in that community can have a big effect on not just productivity, but also the, the health of, of crops. Aside from the methods of, of agriculture and the chemicals that are being used, what are the other factors that contribute to organic matter and you know the amount of living organisms in the soil. There's been, uh, you know, for example, a movement in the last several years. You know, advocates of plant-based diets. You know, arguing that uh, we should remove all kind of animals from the food ecosystem, essentially. And you know, what do you think about that argument? And what's the problem? What are the potential problems with that approach? Well, the, the potential problem with that is that if we if we entirely switch to a plant-based diet, but we farm those plants in ways that degrade and destroy the soil, we're no better off. <laughs> um, and, and that's been the story of many societies in the past in terms of how farming practices, you know, whether or not they integrated animal husbandry into them, uh, had degraded land enough to impact whole societies. So the, you know, whatever one chooses to eat in terms of evaluating both the health impacts and the environmental impacts of it, the first question someone ought to be asking is not necessarily what you're eating, but how is what you are eating grown? Because there's ways to raise livestock that can actually enhance the fertility of the land. And there's a long history of you know livestock manuring the land. And when you relate it to the soil microbiome, you can think of a cow, for example, as a, a wandering inoculation machine that, that their manure is full of microbes. And if they're the right microbes that can actually help support healthy soil, that can actually help build the fertility of the land. And, uh, you know, in what we've looked into in terms of the effects of uh, livestock grazing on the on the environment, um, it really depends on how the cows are managed. It can go either way. I've seen plenty of examples where, you know, overgrazing led to gulling and destruction of land. And frankly, I was quite surprised in visiting some regenerative uh, uh, ranchers over the last uh, five or six years to find that they had really used livestock as a tool for rebuilding soil health. Um, and there's connections to human health that get into, you know, based on what those livestock are eating as well. So I think that the arguments we ought to be having over plant-based versus animal-based diets really should be a lot more nuanced and ask the question of how are those plants raised? And how are the livestock actually raised? Because there's no question that a, a, a meat-rich diet on livestock raised in, um, in confined feeding operations uh, and fed mostly seed feeds derived from crops that were grown in ways that, that degraded the soil, that's not good for people, it's not good for cows, it's not good for the land, it's not good for the planet. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no room for animal products in agriculture and in healthy diets and in and healthy landscapes. I had Will Harris from White Oak Pastures on my show. You might be familiar with him and, and also Joel Salatin in the past. And those were very interesting conversations about the different ways that animal husbandry and, and raising animals and incorporating them in the food system can happen. And they're, they're really kind of a polar opposite of how things tend to happen on, on the, you know, in industrial agriculture. One of the biggest 
questions that comes up, and I know you've addressed this, um, is is that kind of agriculture or or you know method of raising food scalable? You know, people say, well, that's nice in a kind of boutique. Uh, 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 way, you know, like it's it's nice for white oak pastures, it's nice for Joel Salatin, but come on, let's, you know, get realistic here. We need to feed the world, and the only way we're going to do that is with monocropping soy and corn and 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 rice and wheat. So what what would you say to someone who has that objection? It, I mean, I, I think that the question of scale on anything um, is important, but I also think, you know, at the same time, we we probably all realize at this point, especially you know, in somewhere like the United States, or some of us at least may realize this, we should probably be, we don't need to be consuming the amount of animal protein that we do, especially, you know, if you're eating it at nearly every meal. And we certainly ought to be thinking about uh, consuming more nutrient-dense animal protein. And at the same time that I say nutrient dense, I also mean animal protein that is not got antibiotics, low levels of phytochemicals, unhealthy balance of fats. So that's kind of how I respond to the scale thing is like, I don't really think we need to scale this up. I mean, animals have always been a part of agriculture. And you look around at other cultures that have animals in their farming systems and they, they tend to be breeds that do very well for uh, you know, a local climate and a local region. I remember reading about uh, cows in, of all places, Kerala Indian. So this is a southern part of India that is incredibly hot. And these cows are about the size of ponies, okay? So it's not this, it's not this giant Holstein that has been bred so large it can't even... Uh, really survive out on on a in a pasture environment, and it, that goes sort of back, Chris, to your um, initial question about yield. And we've gotten so mixed up when it comes to animals and yield in some ways that we we sort of have forgotten that there are these breeds of animals, whether you're talking, uh, you know, a ruminant or pigs or chickens, that have always done well in particular conditions, and that you know, the people, the farmers who live in those regions know what those, those breeds are. So I don't think it's about so much about scalable as it is about adaptability and resiliency. Be, we should be using animal breeds that work well, especially given our changing climate, uh, that work well in the regions where people live. So, and we, and at the same time eating, you know, higher quality, uh, high, higher quality animal proteins. And, there's, and uh, you know, I actually think that the, 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 sort of the feed the world and yield question is a bit of a red herring. Uh, and the reason I would argue that is that of the regenerative farms that we visited, and particularly the ones I wrote about in Growing a Revolution, um, their yields of these regenerative farmers were comparable to their conventional neighbors, if not higher. They were able to grow as much, if not more food with healthy fertile soil, and they did it with less fertilizer, less pesticide, and less diesel. Better for the environment, they grew just as much food. Now, in terms of the size of farms, that's a really interesting question. Uh, the largest regenerative farms I've been on are 20,000 some odd acres. They're huge. In Dakotas, you know, you couldn't see it, you see it over the horizon. Um, and they were growing mostly, you know, uh, mostly grains and commodity crops, but they were doing it in a different way than we have to tend to do it con conventionally. And their yields were comparable to, to what their conventional neighbors were getting. Their profits were better because they spent less to grow that the same amount. Um, but you also can look at the yield question through a, a couple other lenses in terms of scalability. You know, there's two models for thinking about that. There's the large farm versus small farm question. Um, and I think you can do regenerative on both. Um, but there's also the question of, well, what's your strategy for scaling? Because you could, you, could, you could scale out production by cloning lots of small farms rather than just consolidating them into a few big farms. And our agricultural policies, incentives, and subsidies for the last 80 years in this country have favored uh, large farms. We, that's a policy choice. We could reverse that. We could start favoring and subsidizing and helping out farmers to, to, to do small farms. And why might that make sense for feeding the world? Uh, well, because if you actually look at the data in terms of how much food you can produce per hectare of land, small farms produce more than big farms. 
Now, if you look at it for one crop, say you just look at corn, it flips, it's the reverse. You know, a monoculture is really good for growing a whole lot of like one or two things. If you really want to grow a lot of food, on the other hand, you grow diverse polycultures on small farms and you produce more per hectare. Uh, and if you look at who feeds the world today, something like 70% of the world's food comes from small farms. Now, most of that's in the, the non-Westernized world. So we'd have to think, you know, in terms of a regenerative agriculture strategy, you know, how is it different in, um, in different portions of the world with access to different technologies and capital and so forth. But the basic idea that you can farm in ways that build soil health, what we call regenerative farming, is, is something that can work for the scalability, it can work for the yield question. It's a very different way of thinking about the soil and requires very different ways of farming, but we've seen it work. Let's talk amino acids for a moment. On my recent episode, Why Amino Acids Are the Building Blocks of Life, I discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how Keon aminos can help you live a long, active, healthy life. To truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health, think about your body and what it's made of. You've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water. What you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash Chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. Are you, I mean, there's so many ways I want to follow up with this. I want to circle back to what we started talking about, which was yield. And is there, are you aware of a metric that is used that combines calories with nutrient density for yield in agriculture? Is there such a thing? Well, in effect, nutrient density is is uh, nutrients per calorie is one yeah. way to think about it. Yeah. So in a, in a way that kind of incorporates it, but not not I think directly in the way that you're you're uh, seeing. I, I guess what I'm wondering is 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 that even part of the conversation around yield in, in most conversations? Because it you know if, if we think about like corn. Okay, great. We can grow a ton of corn. <laughs> we can grow a ton of rice. We can grow a ton of wheat. And that's going to that's gonna produce a certain amount of calories. But as we've discussed, if our goal is to promote optimal health, we're not just thinking about calories. We're thinking about nutrient density. Uh, there was a study published by Ty Beal and Flaminia Ortenzi in, in, in uh, March of this year. 
And it was the first study that ever quantified nutrient density of common foods that took bioavailability into account. So, you know, we know, of course, that the amount of nutrients in a that's listed on a food label for a particular food, we don't ever absorb 100% of that. And we know because there are compounds like oxalates and phytic acid that in interfere with our absorption of minerals, just like I know there are parallels there in the soil as well. Sorry, there must be a UPS driver here at the door or something. <laughs> My listeners are used to it at this point. So, you know, four of the top seven foods from a nutrient density perspective were organ meats. And these, of course, have fallen out of favor in the modern diet. But it strikes me that, like, if a small farm is, it has animals and is producing animal foods, it's producing dark leafy greens, which were very high on the nutrient density list, it's, it's producing eggs, which were also very high. Even if the total caloric yield of that farm is way lower than the neighboring monocrop, mono you know, of corn producer, we're going to want more of those small farms any day of the week because uh, from a health impact perspective, that's going to be far better for humanity than more of those large farms. And I, I guess I'm just one, I mean, I know you both are thinking about that, but is, is that part of the conversation like in, among scientists in general who are thinking about this? I mean, I, I think a lot of us who are looking at ways of addressing current problems in the food system Yes, this is very much on, on our minds. Um, I think it gets tricky when we try and sort of quantify things too much, in part because microbiomes, whether in the soil or the body, are really complex and they're really dynamic. And so to say at any one point in time that... Uh, you know, something, I mean, this is sort of the problem with soil health. People keep coming up with different parameters and metrics to define what is it, what's good soil health, what's bad soil health. And it gets you so far in terms of sort of characterizing, you know, the direction that we all want things to go and the final sort of, you know, nutrient density qualities in our plant and animal foods. I like to think about it another way, and I haven't, um, you know, there's probably a way of quantifying it, but it gets at sort of the biotic integrity of the system. So if there were somebody out there listening, here's what we need. We need an index of biotic integrity of, around how well our soil is functioning, uh, how well plants are communicating with their microbiome, how well animals are communicating with their microbiome, because we want high, high biotic integrity, because when that process is in place, then we know that nutrient density is where we want it to be. And so it allows us to sort of move a bit away from um, uh, to your point earlier, oh, let's check vitamin C levels, vitamin B levels, phytochemicals. I mean, you can go down the rabbit hole on any one nutrient, but what you sort of lose from that is how does it all fit together? And you also kind of lose sight of, oh, that's right. If we can get these processes in place that are, back to my point about normal and functioning, then we're getting the quality of foods that we need in the human diet for health throughout the lifespan. So I, I, I think I remember that study. And also I'm like, oh, great. Everyone's really going to want to start eating brain and liver again. <laughs> I happen to like liver, chicken liver in particular yeah. a lot. I'm not holding my breath on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Based but, on what know, I've seen. <laughs> it, it, that, that's a really interesting study for another reason, Chris, because I think what it's showing us is that animals, especially these herbivores, uh, they're able to extract things out of their diet, utilize their own biology to, to turn out this incredibly nutrient dense kind of tissue, right? Yeah. Or, or in the case of ruminants, um, milk. And that goes to show that there's some pretty profound linkages and connections between these different sorts of biology, right? A plant is completely different than an animal. And yet, these animals are able to take in energy and all of these other compounds and molecules. And it's this kind of alchemical transformative thing that's like, wow, why would we not be considering these kinds of foods given 
the health conditions that we're facing today. That's right. And they, and they do certain things better than we do. For example, they convert K1 into K2 more efficiently than we do. They convert beta carotenes into retinol, the active form of vitamin A, often better than we do. And you know, it's, it's in some ways like, let's let them do some of the work <laughs> um, so that we don't have to do all the work. But I, I want to go back to something you, you hinted at, which, you know, there's this concept, uh, this, this food philosopher, I think he's, lives, he's in Australia, his name's Georgi Scrinis, and he coined this term or he popularized it, at least in the scientific literature, which is food synergy. And the concept there, which, which you just spoke to, is that nutrients don't exist in isolation. They exist in an ecosystem, both in the soil and also then later in our bodies. And we know, for example, that uh, you need magnesium to absorb and activate vitamin D. And there's actually the flip relationship there, too. Vitamin D is, is necessary to activate, activate magnesium. So if you're focused myopically on a single nutrient, you may be missing the complex and important relationships that uh, occur between these nutrients that are vital to our health. I mean, another one I just wrote about or did a video about is calcium. It's one of the few examples where I think the RDA is actually too high. The RDA for calcium is based on the premise that people are deficient in vitamin D, vitamin K2, and magnesium among other things. And yes, if that's the case, you do need probably a thousand milligrams of calcium per day, which is what the current RDA is. But studies have shown if you're getting optimal amounts of D and K2 and magnesium and silica and all the other nutrients that support healthy bone formation, you could probably get 600, 700 milligrams of calcium a day and be just fine. So it strikes me and you're, you're talking, you're, you're pointing at this whole complex interplay of, of nutrients that happens, and we need to be focused on that because there's so much of it that we don't even understand yet. We're just like monkeys with computers, you know, barely kind of scratching the surface of understanding this stuff. And if we get too focused on any one single nutrient, we're probably missing the bigger picture. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And so when I think about, we're all after the same outcome, Chris. We want we want higher quality food because we know that the human diet is incredibly important to human health. And so when I think about if we can get these processes in place, then we get to the outcome that we want without going down a million and one rabbit holes that kind of ignore the food synergy picture that you just that you just laid out for us. Because in many ways, you know, we think about symbiotic relationships a lot. So these are the these are the beneficial relationships, you know, between an organism and, and, well, as one example, their microbiome. And it made me think about, you know, there's these symbioses between foods and compounds and molecules. And really what we want to set up, we want to set those symbioses up because they're mutually supportive. And so it's a way of, of, um, of getting at that without driving ourselves crazy trying to understand each and every intricate little detail. Now that kind of stuff is really good when you're first learning about something because it helps you understand larger patterns. But once we get the larger pattern in place, which as an example of that, you know, soil health, we need to be working on soil health and agriculture. Then we can, you know, sort of come up from the mechanistic reductionist things and go, okay, we've got the broad outlines of this thing right. Now let's work on you know policies and practices that get us to that outcome because we're pretty assured that we're going to get you know 80 90 percent of that process back in place that gives us that outcome we're looking for yeah i think that's super important and i mean as i've continued to learn in my career in functional medicine as a functional medicine clinician that's kind of the same way I approach human health at this point is, you know, there's this always this complex interplay of interactions and there's a real risk in becoming too, too hyper-focused in any one particular area, whether that's diet or exercise or sleep or stress management, like there's because health is way more complex than that, you know, good news, bad news. Right. And, and there's, it, it explains in my mind how people can follow totally diverse approaches to health and 
have totally different results, you know, because of, of this complexity and nuance that's happening all of the time. I want to um, switch gears now and talk a little bit more about the solution or a solution or the direction <laughs> toward a solution, if you will, which is, you know, regenerative farming. And, and for, first of all, for the listeners who are not as familiar with that concept, how, how would you define regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming? We look at regenerative agriculture as a, a, you know systems of agricultural practices that enhance and build the fertility of the soil and, and are capable of maintaining it over time as a consequence of intensive agriculture. So it's basically agriculture that doesn't degrade the soil, doesn't degrade the land um, is, is one way to think about it. There's lots of arguments about as people try and spin up um, you know certifications and, and think about discussing, well, okay, who is regenerative and who is not regenerative? There's arguments over what the term actually means. We tend to adopt the sort of the broadest view of that is, you know, if it's building soil health, that's regenerative and there's different ways to do it. There's different paths towards that outcome. Um, the, um, you know, and, and, and when you look at the kind of farming practices that um, it sort of takes to be regenerative, um, what we've come up with in, in visiting farms around the world and interviewing farmers and reading the, as, you know, as much of the scientific literature as we get our hands on, which is a lot, there's something like a thousand references in the source document for the What's Your Food Aid book, the new one. Um, but there's really sort of three basic practices that you can think of as uh, things that need to be done to be regenerative, and that's minimizing disturbance of the soil. So that's minimizing plowing and minimizing agrochemical use. Uh, there's uh, keeping the land covered with living plants. So that's planting cover crops in between plants. So no bare fallow. Uh, so no tilling, no bare fallow. Always keep something growing because that helps feed the microbes. And then grow a diversity of crops. You know, And that could either be a diversity of cover crops with a few cash crops, or it could be a complex rotation of cash crops. There's different ways to do it or with some of the subsistence farms in Africa that we visited. And it's a very diverse set of entirely edible crops, uh, you know, with it's, uh, the eight to 10 different crops in the same field at the same time. There's lots of ways to get diversity, but that minimize disturbance, chemical and physical, maximize you know, the, the time duration of living plants in the land and, um, and uh, grow a diversity of plants is really the recipe for cultivating the beneficial life forms that can help build soil organic matter and support the nutrient cycling at the heart of what we've been talking about. Um, and there's one other uh, additional element that some regenerative farmers do and others don't, and that's reintegrating animal husbandry into their operations. Um, and it's and there's large scale regenerative grazing operations that aren't really doing cropping, but they're growing you know, diverse pastures. Um, so there's different ways to do it, but those are those are sort of the broad outlines as we see it. And I kind of view the the challenge of rebuilding the health and fertility of the world's agricultural lands as a pretty fundamental global infrastructure project for humanity to grapple with this century. It's kind of like the climate, kind of like freshwater provision, healthy fertile soil. Those three things uh, are, are things that our future generations are going to need um, and that we can see paths towards providing. And the, the soil is the one we're mostly engaged on, but there's of course links between that and water and the climate as well. It's, these aren't isolated systems. And where, what, what's your sense of where we are um, in terms of our current status of the soil and how much time we have to figure this out and make change? I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, so with climate, you know, of course, we hear a lot of different ideas about that and, you know, uh, on the whole spectrum. Um, so with soil, where are we? Like I've, I've seen some pretty dire statistics that are frankly quite scary in terms of like the current status of topsoil and, you know, what's, what's possible, what's going to happen if we don't turn that around quickly. So I'm just curious, like where, what, what your sense of that is. Yeah, I sort of view it as a slow motion disaster. Um, and the second part's the truly worrying part. The first part is where a little bit of optimism can creep in. Because if it's happening in slow motion, we have time to maybe turn that ship and turn it around. Um, I've seen regenerative farmers uh, restore the fertility of their land in a decade or two, uh, which to me as a geologist is incredibly fast. And, you know, and I've seen Anne restore the soil organic matter in our yard even faster than that. So the, the potential to turn it around is, is both immediate and real and, and, fairly, and it could be done fairly quickly. The challenge is, is getting people to start doing it. That is the social part that's going to be the real challenge, I think. Uh, we know a lot about the methods and mechanisms for doing it. Um, 
the the good news on the the soil end is I think that we we have you know decades to to get it right. We, we need to get it right this century. We don't have beyond twenty one hundred. It's kind of similar to the climate, and we need to deal with it now, as in this century. I think that changing the global agricultural system from what we now call conventional to what we now call regenerative agriculture is doable over the next 20, 30, 40 years. You know, a few decades, we could do it. And I think the stars are aligning that it makes a lot of sense economically for farmers. It makes sense uh, for, the, for the, the ability to continue provisioning the world with food. It makes sense for our own individual health with the choices that we make as consumers. So I think there's the potential for a, a lot of growth in that area. When I wrote Dirt uh, back in 2007, the book that started Ann and I off on, on thinking along these lines, nobody was talking about soil health. It was not really a thing. Um, now you go to farming conferences and that's what everybody wants to talk about. It Because farmers are looking for something, a better way to do things because the, the, the conventional ways aren't working out that well for them um, on a number of levels that we'd be happy to talk about. But the... Um, I think that if you look globally, we've degraded about 50% of the world's soil organic matter on agricultural lands. In the US, that number's about the same, roughly 50%. We've drawn down the batteries that feed us by about half. We need to recharge the batteries. Um, but I think we can do it uh, with a focused effort. Um, globally, something like only about 3% of the world's farmland is, is uh, practiced regeneratively uh, with all the, the principles that I mentioned earlier. Um, but there's been a lot of big movement towards no-till. There's uh, a big movement now towards cover crops. The challenge is getting people to integrate all three elements. Um, and then those who are interested in reintegrating animal husbandry to get the regenerative uh, grazing practices back on, on play as well. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done, um, but interest is growing. And I think there's cause for optimism to look for increasing adoption. Um, because frankly, it just makes sense and we need to do it this this century. It's like the climate issue. There's no advantage for waiting. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is that we have technology that already exists. It's been in existence for millions of years, and that is plants and photosynthesis. So while there are other things to throw at climate change, you know, other other technologies, people want to build carbon capture things that, okay, go do that. But in the meantime, I think photosynthesis and the ability of, of crops as well as wild plant communities to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and get it down into the soil and store it as life, life that's constantly cycling. That is a really positive thing. We already know it works. And what's really interesting about uh, how when you start changing these practices and start getting more carbon back into the soil, it doesn't take 50 years for this to happen, Chris. You talk to any farmer or gardener who has begun to implement these regenerative practices, and within a couple growing seasons, they're saying, you're, you're like, oh, wow, I'm seeing that dark layer form on the top. You know, I'm having... And there's all these silver linings, you know, less pest and pathogen problems, you know, in the case of farming, we hope, you know, better nutrient density. So there's, there's really a lot to be said for moving in this direction um, and, and achieving some of the things that we need to on the climate front. This is totally anecdotal, but, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I didn't know any young people that were going into farming or maybe not many, but now I know a lot, you know, I have a, uh, close friend of ours, her daughter is in her late 20s, and she is like so on fire about this and is looking for land and is ready, you know, studying, is, has done lots of internships, you know, with regenerative farms, and, and she has a whole bunch of friends that are moving in that direction, and it strikes me that if we're going to have more small farms, we're going to need more farmers to, to be working <laughs> those small farms, so I'm just curious if, if you've seen that evolution over the course of the past 20 years. For sure, oh, no doubt. Oh yeah, the uh, the students at the University of Washington where I teach uh, started a student farm um, about, oh, 10, 15 years ago or so. Uh, and when I, when I was hired there, there was like, we don't have an ag program, we don't have a soils program. Um, yeah, there's, there's no real sort of reason we ought to have like a whole lot of students on campus who are wanting to become farmers and are interested in agriculture, but we do. Um, and that has really grown in the last uh, couple decades. Um, and, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of young people who are very enthused about, you know, doing something very positive in the world with a very, with a different approach. 
Uh, and one of the best things that we could do as a nation, I think, is to figure out ways to help help young farmers get on the land doing regenerative practices. And that could come in the form of subsidies, it could come in the form of loans, apprenticeships, all kinds of different things. But you know, farming is sort of a high capital business. Land ain't cheap. Um, and it's a low margin business. You know, the returns aren't spectacular by Silicon Valley standards. And you know, I used to go to farming conferences and you know, even in my 50s, I would be one of the youngest people in the room. Now that's starting to change. Um, you know, I'm obviously older now, but um, but the people coming to those kind of conferences are there's more and more young people interested in it as a lifestyle, as a business, as a way to support a family. And as a nation, we ought to be doing everything we can to support young farmers getting into the business. Yeah. And I think one of the most positive things is seeing one of the farms uh, that we visited for What Your Food Ate has a really robust internship apprentice type program where they bring young people onto the farm. And it it works really well with uh, like a no-till vegetable kind of a farm where the acreage is not vast. This particular farm is, they've got maybe three or four acres. It's under really active production. And they've got about maybe six, eight interns. And when we visited, these kids were busy. They're outside. They like that. They're not behind a screen. They're moving around. So physical activity is good. They're eating really good food. Their social health, you know, they've, they're, you know, commingling with all of the other folks. I mean, it's a really good work setting in some ways for a young person who is looking to use not just their mind, but their body. And to, to, to be able to combine that in a way that benefits the planet and hopefully translates into a better future. I can't think of like, you know, a better career opportunity in some ways. Yeah, I think a lot of people in general and young people are looking for more meaningful work as well and work that connects them with the community, with the earth, the land that's happening in real time with real people instead of behind a screen, you know, in a cubicle all day. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but there's a lot of people for whom that's not a satisfying existence. And, you know, having a more immediate, intimate contact with, with the world they live in uh, and, and the food they eat and is really, like you said, it's a, it's a calling, you know, it's something that really appeals to people. Um, with the last few minutes that we have, I want to. We, we've been mostly t talking about the different levels that cha where change needs to happen. There's like a, a public policy level where we could really incentivize, like you said, David, you know, support people who are starting small farms in all kinds of different ways. We can make changes in the educational system to support that. Then we have, you know, the farmers themselves who are already farmers. Like, how, how do we support them, which could also be policy cha changes, economic incentives, more education, et cetera. But what about an individual person who is listening to this podcast? They, they, they are resonating with this. They understand the importance of all of this. What choices can they make that, you know, can help increase the nutrient density of the food that they're eating and just overall cultivate that kind of biotic diversity and health that you you talked about and you know I'll start it off with like one question there's there's been a lot of emphasis on eating organic which I think is is positive but I one of the things I've often encouraged people to do is eat eat locally <laughs> as much as possible because as as soon as you take something out of the ground it's going to start losing nutrient value right away and so if it's shipped for 2000 miles across the country which is true for the average carrot by the time you eat it, even if it was grown organically in an organic farm 2,000 miles away, by the time you put it in your mouth, the nutrient levels are going to be a lot lower. So what, what do you think the most important things are for individuals at, in terms of choices that they're making? Yeah, I, first of all, I think that we all need to talk about this more because, you know, any kind of change or, or action uh, it it starts with some level of communication information, and then from there you can you know go the organizing route and onto the political route if one desires that. But one thing that for somebody who's really interested in this and wants to know more about this, I'd really encourage you know checking in with your local farmers market, and even if that's already you know a regular practice of a person. Start, you know, this would be a pretty interesting question to uh, a farmer 
at the market would be to say, hey, you know, I was listening to this, you know, Chris Kresser's podcast or wherever, whatever it is, and say, they talked a lot about soil health. Do you know what that is? You know, I just learned about it. And depending on what that farmer says, if they're like, huh, then you're like, probably maybe go to the next one. Yeah, go on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, and so I booth. think when you get like, uh, you know, I, I talk all the time to farmers at the farmer's market where, where we shop and they always, I mean, farmers are definitely one crowd that they like generally to be talking about their farm, what happened this season, what happened this week. And it is a way for a consumer to kind of get behind what are the actual uh, practices. And then once you start to get more and more of that sort of information and, and sort of experience, you can start to talk with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers about it. And I think that's that's really important to do for the reason that you said is, is that even if something is grown organically or for that matter, regeneratively, if it's shipped too far, been sitting around too long, it's just not good. And this goes to sort of the point of scalability and small farms and thinking about not only animals, but also crops that are adapted to you know the emerging the emerging new you know, climate uh, conditions out there, whether it's the drought in the West or all of the, the rain in the East, we've got to figure out ways to be you know, finding crops and animals that do best in those conditions. So there's a, there's a lot, there is a lot to talk about. And, and if we let farmers know that we're interested in their practices because we understand that practices are a huge influence on the different kind of nutrients from phytochemicals to selenium to zinc, you know, are, you know, that we understand that then farmers are gonna, I think, start going, aha, these people are getting cluey. They're asking me questions that I, you know, I wanna know more about too. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, that makes sense. It's, a, it's increasing demand on both sides of the equation. And yeah, I mean, it, and it's also, of course, if someone's inclined, like growing stuff in your backyard is as, as you've done. And I mean, my wife has taken a few permaculture courses and I've been just amazed at what is possible to grow in, in a small, you know, on a small plot of land. It, it was admittedly a lot easier when we lived in Northern California than it is in, in Park City where it snowed a foot on Memorial Day <laughs> last uh, this year and it could snow tomorrow here in September. So we have a very short growing season and, and we need a greenhouse. But even then, like we had, we're members of a local, uh, farm CSA and I'm just blown away by what they can produce in such a short growing season with greenhouses. So it's, you know, if, if people are oriented in that direction, there's nothing like taking, you know, fresh herb out of your garden or tomato off the vine in your backyard. It's just the, the, the taste I don't think I had really tasted a tomato until I was 22 or 23 or something. Cause what I had grown up eating in the store, those waxy yeah. pale tomato flavored water texture yeah. type of things. <laughs> like, so yeah, it's, it's pretty, you can taste that nutrient density in the food. You really can. Oh yeah. And, and, and yeah. And to that point, once you do, once your body, you know, we go into this in the book, we call it body wisdom. Once the body puts together a really positive flavor and taste embedded in that is high nutrient density. So it's like, I don't need to read any freaking labels, yeah. right? Because the flavor and taste are, have taken care of that for me. And, and I, you know, I, I like that idea and farmers understanding that idea and consumers understanding that idea. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's a, there's some evolutionary wisdom working there, right? Well, I I'm, I'm really enjoyed this interview. I loved the book. So the book is What Your Food Ate and tell everyone where they can learn more about it and pick up a copy. Well, uh, if people are interested in uh, learning a little bit more about it, they could uh, visit our website, which is dig2grow, dig2grow.com. And we've got you know the brief synopses of, of the various books that we've written, including the new one, What Your Food Ate. Uh, you can download the, the references for the source material and what your food ate. If you want to see all the papers that we read that you don't have to if you read the book because we read them for you. 
And in terms of getting the book, it should be available wherever books are sold. If you like your, your local independent bookstore, or whether you like Amazon or directly from the publisher, W.W. Norton, uh, if you Google what's your food ate, you'll find a way to acquire it if you want. And if you want to acquire a signed copy, you know, send us an email through our website. Those emails uh, forward to Dan and I. Great. Yeah. And I have to say, I've, I've really enjoyed the book. It's, it's accessible and easy to read. And yet it's not dumbed down. It's, there's plenty of technical data and, and interesting detail for people who, who want that. And then it's, it's also just a great story of the history of soil and the role that soil plays in human health and well-being and, and the health of not just humans, of course, but all life uh, on the planet. And so it's, it's very timely and uh, really great read. And I, I definitely encourage everyone to go pick up a copy. So Anne and David, thanks again for joining me and thanks for all the phenomenal work you're doing and looking forward to the next book. Yeah. No worries. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. And that's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.